Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of On the Mound. I'm Matt Sossler, joined alongside by Max Tanzer and Tommy Muma. It was a busy offseason weekend in baseball with the most breaking news coming just earlier this week, a couple days ago, with a revolutionary hiring in the major leagues, Kim Eng taking over the reins down in Miami. First off, I want to get your guys' opinions on this. What are your thoughts on this very, very monumental hire in the major leagues? Max, why don't you start us off? I think it's absolutely tremendous, and I wasn't expecting this at all. I woke up and saw the news, and I, I was so happy to see it, but I didn't hear any rumors about this. But for Aang, she's been in Major League Baseball for a couple of decades now, and honestly, I think it's about dang time she's gotten this job. It's revolutionary, as you said. It's going to open doors to several women in Major League Baseball. We've already seen some female coaches in Major League Baseball, both of the Giants and New York Yankees as well. It's really fantastic to see that doors are opening, and these women who are so qualified are getting these opportunities to coach and make a big impact at the major league level i think it's absolutely amazing as you said she has been deserving this job for a long time she's been with the yankees the dodgers major league baseball most recently i think that she's worked with them for about 10 years i just think it's absolutely amazing for the marlins it's a groundbreaking and historic move i think it's great i was so happy to see the news today as you said, Max, and um, I think it's going to be a great um, a great move for the Marlins. I think she's going to help the team, and, um, you know, that's a team that's on the rise, too. We've talked about them before, so if she could bring them to the World Series soon, I think that'd be amazing as well, so I think it's a great day. Yeah, Kim Ang, the first female general manager in the history of the major leagues, and as Tommy said, she's inheriting a playoff team. And this team is, Tommy said again, on the rise. So she has a good chance, as you mentioned, Tommy, already to bring this team another ring, the first ring in what will be over a decade. And it's really intriguing and really exciting to see, again, as Max says, sort of to sum up and tie together what you guys just said, to see how this opens doors for women in baseball. We saw, or we've seen, excuse me, over the past couple of years, some female coaches. We saw... Earlier in the season, females actually getting on-field opportunities instead of analytical opportunities behind the scenes. And this just paves the way again to open up the doors for women in baseball. And again, Miami is making a very, very smart move here because as Tommy said, she was very successful with the New York Yankees and in other front offices in the other league. How do you think those experiences will help her out heading into this monumental role? I think it'll help her attend and I think it'll help, you know, just anyone who's had the experience she's has proves that she belongs to be there. Uh, you know, experience in winning cultures, as Tommy mentioned, three World Series rings. You know, you don't just get handed those rings, you earn them. And I think she's prepared for this situation and I think she's 100% qualified. And I think she'll do a great job and she's inheriting, as you mentioned, a very, very young and bright Marlins team that, you know, was taken over by Derek Jeter a few years ago, got a lot of criticism. But while he did make the unpopular moves to get rid of Yelich, Stanton, and Ozuna, at the end of the day, it cleaned some of the payroll and now they have a team that is looking bright towards the future and she has a great opportunity to catch that wave and ride in hopefully get their get the Marlins their first World Series ring since 2003. I agree absolutely I think that the experience helps you mentioned won three World Series with the Yankees around that winning culture and 
Um, I think it helps that she knows Derek Jeter as well, too, right? I think it's, um, you know, it's good that they know each other. And But I think, as we were saying before, I think it's a great addition. She, she's been a part of winning, and I think she's going to continue it there with the Miami Marlins. And before we move on, what would you do if you were in her shoes? You're inheriting a Marlins team that, as you mentioned many times, on the rise – what would be your number one move, especially considering the NL East is starting to become a battle of kingpins right now with Steve Cohen being very aggressive in free agency? If you're Kim Ang, what do you do to get Miami over the top fast? I trust What's your the, first move. I trust the process. Obviously, they made the playoffs last year, but let's be real here. It was a shortened season, and they got some good performances some, from some veterans, you know, like a Brad Boxberger, like a Jesus Aguilar, Corey Dickerson, so forth. The list goes on. And there's question of whether they'll bring those guys back or not, but they do have their core. You know, Brian Anderson, Miguel Rojas, Jazz Chisholm coming up. Sixto Sanchez was brilliant this year on the mound after being called up midway. I wouldn't try to do too much if I were her at this point, just because your core is still coming up. I think the way to rebuild a team is to get your flux of prospects, and once they come up, you'll know the holes you need to fill. If they try to fill them now, let's say they go for a second baseman and spend a lot of money on that. Well, you might have that star second baseman in Chaz Chisholm, Jazz Chisholm, excuse me, coming up. I'd say wait, let them solidify a little bit, then fill in the gaps once you get there. I don't think the Marlins are quite right there yet, especially when you have a team like the Braves, who's really good, the Mets, who expect to be competing for the division, and then a team like the or a team like the Nationals, excuse me, who are very good as well, and the Phillies, who are competitive. I would be patient, but still keep in mind that you're trying to keep building forward. Yeah, you said it, Max. I think that they're not quite there to where they're going to be going out and getting free agents at this point. But you mentioned they got a good core. That team's getting better. They're knocking on the door of being contenders, at least playoff contenders. And I think they're going to keep moving in the right direction. But at the same time, you know, I don't want to take anything away from what the Marlins did this year. But it was a 60-game season. So, like you said, they got to build the farm system. They got to get back. Um, you know, they got to get a little closer talent wise before they're going to go out and add free agents. But I agree, you know, keep adding to the farm system. They're certainly moving in the right direction. And hopefully, here in a few years, they're going to be ready to contend for a title. The only position I could see them adding big time is, is maybe one of the core positions. Like, I wouldn't be opposed to bringing back Starling Marte because they acquired him from the Diamondbacks and he was a part of that team in that playoff run. Bring him back for sure if you want to and if he wants to come back because he's a great player. Or maybe a starting pitcher as well. I don't think that would be terrible. But a shortstop position, second base position, I don't know if you need to break the bank and spend so much money when you really don't know where your pluses are going to be around the diamond. Yeah, I think that you have to build and you have to take your time if you're Kim Ang here because... I think that, as we've mentioned many times, this team has a lot of young guys at the big league level who are going to take another couple of years to get to their prime form. And then you also have to focus your time, as you said, Max, on retaining some of those veterans that you have because, as we've seen with many teams, the 2016 Cubs, for example, is that you need a David Ross for every Javier Baez or every young player on that team and I think that Starling Marte can provide that role not only on the field but in the dugout as well and I think you also have many bullpen arms that might need to be reshuffled such as Brandon Kinsler to be 
to give one example because he, even though he did a great job in the closing role, he is more of a setup or possibly a seventh inning guy. At least he was during his prior stints with the Nationals and with the Cubs. But I think it's all about building around. But again, that takes time. I think if they try and make a splash, they might go in too deep. However, again, it's an exciting time if you're the Miami Marlins. And I think that she's going to do a phenomenal job. She's been successful, and I think she will be successful, especially given the situation that she's getting into. And before we move on, any final thoughts on this monumental hire? I think it's going to work out great. Obviously, this is the opportunity she's been waiting for for her whole life, and I can't wait for her to jump on top of it and take it and run with it. I agree. Once again, I just think it's an amazing hire, an amazing day, um, historic day for the sport, and you know, I think it's going to pay off, like you said, Max. I think that she's going to help bring him a title. Yeah, we'll see what happens down there in Miami over the next couple of weeks and couple of months. And now moving on, this past week, many awards were announced in major leagues. Let's first start on the mound with the Cy Young Award. And both pitchers coming from Ohio, what are some of your initial thoughts on Shane Bieber and Trevor Bauer winning those titles? I think... Both of them, I don't want to say Bauer ran away with it, but Shane Bieber definitely ran away with it. No disrespect to Maeda and Ryu, who put up really good years, but Shane Bieber won a triple crown, in my opinion, was by far the best pitcher in Major League Baseball this year. Garnered it was a 60-game season, but he put that Indians team on his back, one of the key reasons why they make the playoffs. I will argue, this might be a, a bull take, and you could argue Jose Ramirez played a similar role too, but without Shane Bieber... I don't even know if the Indians make the playoffs this year. It's very close. And with that said, I think he was the most valuable and the best pitcher this year. No doubt in my mind, AL Cy Young. For Bauer, it was tighter. DeGrom, Darvish, and Bauer were all very deserving. I just think the fact that Bauer uh, led an ERA was so dominant and helpful for the Reds down the stretch in September. Usually, it's not voted like that in terms of value, but I think when it's as close as it was in this race, then you start to use that as a tiebreaker. And without Trevor Bauer, the Reds are probably not in the playoffs either. He was tremendous. The fact that he had a ERA north of six last year after he was traded to Cincinnati said it was because of some injury problems, took the time to heal, then took the pandemic to work on things and get better and was able to put that under the field and show it with the statistics is absolutely phenomenal in my eyes. And I'm so excited to see what he does and what he can help Major League Baseball with in the future, both on and off the field. And I don't think this will be his first one. I think he has a couple in the future waiting for him as well. You said it, Max. I think that both of these pitchers are two of the best in the game. Certainly this year they were. They were very deserving. And I agree. I think that in both cases, their respective clubs might not have made the postseason without their incredible years. You look at, um, you know, Cleveland, they were one game out of first place. They were tied with the White Sox there. And, you know, it's certainly very close. Um you know, if he doesn't pitch well, do they make the postseason? I'm not so sure. And you gave some of the stats. He was 8-1, and one, a 1.63 ERA this season. Shane Bieber, that is. He was just outstanding for them. I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do. He had 122 strikeouts, too, in uh, just 12 starts, which is remarkable. Um, and then Trevor Bauer. I'm glad that he won the Cy Young. I think that he's great for the game. We all know... He's a character, but he came out ready to go this year. He helped Cincinnati out, a 1.73 ERA. He didn't get as much run support. He was only 5-4, and four, 
but a really great year. Obviously won the Cy Young. Um, very happy for him. And like you said, Max, I'm looking forward to what he can do both on and off the field. You know, he's very active on Twitter, very opinionated. And I know we'll get into it um, as we move on in this show uh, throughout the winter. But I'm looking forward to seeing where he ends up. I know that there's a lot of teams looking at him. He said that he's open to going to any team. And, um, you know, he's opinionated about some. I think he visited Houston a few weeks ago. But we all know his thoughts on that. So I'm looking forward to seeing what happens there. But that's for another episode. But like you said, um, two very deserving winners. Yeah, you mentioned Trevor Bauer and his antics and how opinionated he is. And I think, as you said, he's great for the game. I think it's phenomenal that he won the Cy Young. But moving across now to the American League to hit on that a little bit, Shane Bieber, as you both mentioned, ran away with that. I really don't think it was close. As we looked over the nominations when they were announced the finalists, we looked at the American League, looked at the National League, and we could tell right off the bat that, or should I say right off the mound, (laughs) that uh, (laughs) Shane Bieber would have run away with that award. And the thing that you got to think about is, one you mentioned about the fact that if he wasn't there and didn't perform the way he did, that Cleveland wouldn't have made the playoffs. One thing you got to think about is that division came down to the final weekend. The White Sox especially were in a position where if they won one or two more games, they would have climbed up in the seedings in the postseason. I think from the seven to the two possibly. And therefore, as a result, Cleveland would have moved around as well. And I think that especially you look at a guy like Bieber, he helped in that effort a lot. And also considering how depleted that rotation has gotten since they made it to the World Series in 2016. And one of those guys, a convenient transition here, Trevor Bauer in the National League. And one thing I want to hit on here is that's a much tighter race. You know, I think that if you Darvish is able to flip one of his starts late in the season that he had a bit of a rough go, I think that we might be having a different conversation today. I think that it was neck and neck between them. We were looking at around with a month left of the season that this would be a three-person race with DeGrom there as well because DeGrom has been the consistent guy as always. He won the prior two, and a lot of people thought they'd run away with this one as well prior to the season, especially with Cindergaard taking the season off with Tommy John. So I think that overall, Trevor Bauer... Nailed it shut with his final two starts. And I think that Darvish sort of beat himself in the final two starts. But this race, much closer. What are some of your thoughts on the grand scheme of the National League Cy Young race? Yeah, and you're right. It was closer in the National League. But I do think Bauer takes the cake in that case. Uh, If you just look at, you know, with how tight it is, he had the higher ERA uh, and really led in most categories. He did have one less start. So that could hurt him, especially in 60-game season. But he was just so dominant, I didn't think it mattered. I'm happy with Bauer winning, and, you know, I would have given him my first-place vote. I agree with you there. I think that Trevor Bauer was the clear winner here. But like you said, it was close. You Darvish, he was very good this year. And, you know, I think maybe part of it, I don't know. Well, the postseason doesn't come into play, right? But I don't know. I... I think that Trevor Bauer is the clear winner here, but you Darvish, he did pitch in a lot of meaningful games, and so did Bauer, but I don't know. It was a close one, but I think Trevor's the winner for sure. And moving off of that a little more, the one thing that we can use here that could not be used if you were to move Jacob DeGrom into the second spot 
is the quality of competition and sort of as a segue between the two major awards that were announced this week between the Cy Young and the MVP. This year, not only was it a 60-game season, but quality of competition was a lot different across all six divisions. How do you think that possibly could have impacted the writers' decision on who they filled in on both and all the major awards? I, I think it definitely impacted the statistics, but I don't think it impacted the voting. I think you know, you, you, they almost took it with a grain of salt this year and, you know, said, you know what, this is how it is. We're just going to have to accept it. It does help that both Bauer and Darvish were in the same NL AL Central pod. Uh, and then I guess you have Beaver, who was in the Central, Ryu, who was in the East, and then Maeda, who was in the Central as well. So a little bit of a similar story there. But I, I don't think it played too much of a big role. But if we're going to get a little... Uh, I don't know what the word is, but a little conspiracy theory thoughts out here. I mean, Shane Bieber got hit hard against the New York Yankees in the American League wildcard series game one. He had not been touched whatsoever the entire regular season in a pod that had teams like the Detroit Tigers and the Pittsburgh Pirates and so forth and a weak offense like the Cincinnati Reds. It definitely wasn't the best offensive division or pod, I should say, in Major League Baseball compared to the East when you have teams like the Yankees, Blue Jays, uh, even the Rays who are really good. Uh, And then the National League East, you have arguably the best offensive team in the Major League Baseball in the Atlanta Braves and a good team in the Phillies too, and the list goes on. My point being is it definitely probably played a role in some of the extra success from Bieber and Bauer. Don't, I don't want to take anything away from them, but you got to wonder if they were in a different pod, maybe the numbers would be a little bit different, not drastically, but a little bit, and maybe the race would have been different if we had played everybody or if they all had played each other. I think that's a really interesting point. I think that it certainly could have played a factor if they were playing in, uh, you know, playing the normal schedule, playing all the teams in their respective league. But, you know, that is an interesting point, Max. Like you say, the Yankees did have a lot of success in in that wild card game against Shane Bieber. But I just think that despite him... Being in that um, division, I think that at the same time, he was just lights out the whole way. And, you know, that that was an outlier, that wild card game there. Um, game one of the wild card yeah. series, that is. And I uh, think that's an outlier, but it is an interesting point to think about, though. I will say there's not enough to prove that that played an impact, but it's just a question and it's just a thought. Again, don't want to take anything away from Bauer and Bieber who were lights out this season. Yeah, that's the thing you have to look at is even though the competition had a clear divide across all six divisions, I think that you still have to give credit where credit is due and Bieber and Bauer each having phenomenal seasons. And even one could argue that they more than likely going into the season, each of us could have laid, laid out our top five pitchers in each league and I'm sure each of those would be on all three of our respective lists And now moving on to another big award that was announced this week, the MVP award. You have Jose Abreu from the Chicago White Sox, Freddie Freeman on the Atlanta Braves. Guys, what are some of your initial thoughts on these decisions? American League was super tight for me. And at first, I thought it was a runaway for Jose Abreu. But when you look at the numbers closer and closer, LeMahieu and Ramirez had a case. For one, LeMahieu. 2.8 2.8 baseball reference were compared to Abreu's 2.8. The only difference was LeMahieu played less games, but he won the batting title at 364, OPS to 1,011 compared to Abreu at 987. The WOBA and the WRC Plus were in the same territory as well. So if LeMahieu had played just maybe five to six more games and if and had would have kept the average, 
you know, within 350 to 364 where he finished at, I think he would have had a better and stronger case, especially with his defensive versatility. But I do think in a shortened season that did hurt him a lot. With Ramirez, again, the offensive numbers are there. 17 homers. OPS 993, which is basically the same as what Abreu did. The defense was just significantly worse, and Abreu was fairly solid at first base, so I think that helped him out. But it was really, really close. I think the sabermetrics side with Jose Ramirez a little bit more. But Jose Abreu, you got to give him credit. Definitely the constant in that dominant offense for the Chicago White Sox. Absolutely. I agree with you. Honestly, going into it, even as a Yankees fan, I thought that it was easily going to be Jose Abreu. You brought up some of the numbers, 19 homers, he hit 317, 60 RBI, which that's very impressive in a 60-game season, scored 43 runs. He was just outstanding the whole year for the White Sox. Can't say enough about what he did. I think he is 100% deserving. Going into it, I was kind of thinking that we might see DJ LeMahieu there in second place, but, but I think that Jose Ramirez had an incredible year as well. You talked about those numbers as well. He was great with Cleveland. Um, and DJ, he missed those games. I think that definitely hurt him a little bit in his MVP chances. But he was still a really impactful player, as he always is every time he's out on the field. He hit 364. Hit 10 home runs as well, which, you know, that's impressive. He's not really a home run hitter, as we know. And then you go to the National League. Freddie Freeman, more than deserving. 341, he hit uh, 13 home runs and 53 RBIs. He was outstanding for Atlanta the whole way. And I'm really glad that he now has an MVP to his name. And um, that Braves team, we've talked about them as well. They're another team that's on the rise. They've been knocking on the door for a while now. And hopefully that he can get a World Series title before the end of his career. No doubt, no doubt. And I think Freddie Freeman, again, tremendous year. Really cool to see two first basemen win the MVP in both leagues. First time that's happened in, since 2006 when Ryan Howard of the Phillies and Justin Morneau of the Twins did so. But, I mean, Tom hit, Tommy hit it on the hammer right there. 2-9 baseball reference war. The OPS, 1,102, 456 well, but 187 WRC plus uh, for context, 100's average. So he was well above average in that case. And he plays a good first base, too was the constant, again, in the middle of one of the best offenses in Major League Baseball. Had protection this year with Acuna ahead of him and Azuna right behind him. Azuna, don't take anything away from him, too. Had a really tremendous year, too. He was just a DH, so I think that hurt him a little bit. But Freddie Freeman, pump for him. He's been the guy for the Braves, sticking with them through the rebuilding years, and look where he is now in his prime, winning an MVP. Quite a fun story. And remember, he had COVID at the beginning of the year, and it was not just asymptomatic symptoms. He actually was really, really sick, and there was question on whether he could come back and play, but he was able to battle through it, came back, and put together the best 60-game stretch of his career, arguably. Yeah, that's the thing you mentioned, Max, is that not only with Freeman dealing with COVID, but also the 60-game season, I think both of these guys, both Freeman and Abreu, handled it phenomenally, and they really took note that this season, more than anything else, and we could relate it back to the Cy Young as well, is a massive all-out sprint. And I think that both of them performed night in and night out across all 60 games, especially Abreu. You know, I've never seen a first baseman in Chicago perform that well since Anthony Rizzo back in 2016 2015 during those prime chicago cup years and you know it's interesting to see that he's finally come out i remember when he signed with the white Sox, everything was you know they were just waiting for his time to come and waiting for his time to come 
And now that he finally has his sort of chance and makes it in, then uh, I think that it's awesome that he's finally getting above that peak and now that he finally has protection around him, I think that he's only going to go out from here. And I can say that about both candidates, given that Freeman has a ton of protection. And one thing I want to talk about really briefly before we go is we talked about outliers early in the show with Shane Bieber's performance. And I don't know if you call this an outlier or a mistake, but Ryan Tapera, Chicago <laughs> Cubs reliever, gets a 10th place vote in the MVP. And later we found out it was a mistake. The writer intended for Trey Turner to receive that vote. But what are some of your thoughts on this blunder that I think honestly is kind of funny and will live in baseball history forever? I mean, it was really funny. I was shocked when I saw it at first. As you mentioned, it was supposed to go to Trey Turner. And with the pull-down menu, I guess their names were in the same uh, territory, very close to each other. I mean, yeah, Tapera, who put up a 3-9 ERA in the bullpen, I don't even think started the year with the team, kind of earned the win, win the MVP in that regard. And we really don't see relievers get that type of recognition. I think the last relief pitcher to win a Cy Young was Eric Gagne over 15 years ago. So when I saw Tapera, I was shocked. But obviously, it went to Trey Turner. Did it impact the results whatsoever? As it was a tenth place, tenth place vote, and Turner wasn't close to winning. But definitely, definitely a funny one for sure. And I'm glad it was a mistake because if that was being serious, we would have some big question marks for the BBWAA in that one. I agree. That was a funny moment there, and uh, like you said, he wasn't quite where he needed to be as a reliever. But, you know, that was funny. I saw him tweet about it. And another one who, you know, it's not quite at that level of relief pitcher, but Alex Verdugo, he got yeah, a vote ugh. as well. I was a little That one bothers me more. I was going to say, that one bothers me more because it was a Red Sox better who voted for it. And don't get me wrong, Verdugo had a great year, and he's a bright young star. But he voted for him over Trout and Voigt and several other players. And to me, that's, that's silly. That's silly. If you were to take 2020 Alex Verdugo over 2020 Luke Voigt, who led Major League Baseball in home runs, and 2020 Mike Trout, while he didn't play the entire season, still put up a fantastic year, would be silly to me. Uh, I do think some bias. He did play a role in that one. Um, but you know what? It didn't impact the race at all. So it's not like it could be that bad. But I definitely think that one almost looks worse than the Tapera one because at least the Tapera one was a 10th place vote. Yeah, I agree with both you guys. I think it, you know, I saw the Tapera vote, and then I saw that you received the same amount of votes as Ian Happ, and I was thinking... Hey, I, Kyle I, I Lewis, was, too. Yeah, I was thinking, I was I was very baffled, just to say that, and to be fair, Tapera had a couple of good outings here and there. He was a little inconsistent, but was always able to get it done when he needed to, you know, it'll be kind of funny, you know, we'll look at baseball reference not only this year, but next year and for the rest of our lives. And if someone types in Ryan Tapera, it'll say 18th place in the 2020 NL MVP race, which is always something that he can look at. It's something that you could always show the grandkids when they ask about his baseball career. So that's always nice. Uh, before we go, any final thoughts on both awards given out for the MLB amongst others that we didn't hit. I was going to say, just to add on to your point, I don't know this for sure, but I got to imagine Tapera's 0.2 war is the lowest war any player has gotten an MVP vote for in the last 10, 20 years at least. If I'm wrong, correct me, but 0.2, it's pretty funny to see MVP vote next to that name. 
Yeah, Max, I think this might be one of the lowest numbers that we would see among any MVP candidate, whether that's a batter or a pitcher. I think this might be history unless if another writer has another blunder in a couple of years. And now looking at the Cubs pitching staff numbers, and again, I know this was a complete blunder, but just looking at it again, he did have a higher ERA than Alec Mills. Alec Mills, as everyone knows, through one of two no-hitters in the big leagues this year. But one guy who's also above him in ERA on the Cubs staff is Dan Winkler. And Dan Winkler was not used in many high-leverage situations. He was regarded as one of the weaker arms. Another thing that will be interesting to look at in this Tapera case is, will this MVP finish advance his status in the Cubs pen? The Cubs bullpen struggled a lot last year. And again, even though, and I repeat for our listeners, this was a mistake. Trey Turner was intended to get that vote. But will this perhaps change something? Because Tapera was a rising star in the Cubs staff. He started to slowly gain David Ross's trust and eventually made the postseason roster, made a postseason appearance in a very, very tight game. That game in game one during the wild card series, I believe it was a four or five run deficit at that point however still anytime a pitcher gets a nod in the postseason especially the wild card round it's a very big deal so i'll be interested to see how this impacts him especially again considering he had a lights out postseason performance so we'll see how this impacts the cubs rotation and bullpen moving forward you know it's still just always a good story as i mentioned earlier that tapera can show this to his grandkids and say i finished 18th in the MVP in 2020. So it's always a good story. This will be a story that's told time and time again. That's going to wrap up this edition of On the Mound. Again, for Max Tanzer and Tommy Muma, I'm Matt Soster. Thank you so much for listening to On the Mound on VIC Radio. We'll catch you guys next week.